Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, and we're at a studio visit for Seb Charmaton. Seb Charmaton was born in 1996. We met Seb at Maddox Gallery when he was still a student, and the first show we had with him was called Fuzzy Futures. That was a show after a residency in Shepherd Market, and I feel closer to Seb than most of the artists at <laughs> Maddox, and I feel like your work has evolved from Fuzzy Futures with the kind of blurring of boundaries of identity in a painterly fashion and this kind of overload of images on the canvas to kind of work out what you're seeing, your commentaries on algorithms, ideas ranging from meme culture, politics, art history, data misuse, social media, filtering in childhood memories of cookie monsters, seeing the world that you live in through the eyes of the Muppets, slowing down our viewing process. I mean, I've learned so much through looking at your work. There's a certain nostalgia in it, there's a gentleness to it, but there's a complete focus and determination to create a new aesthetic. Sitting here in the little palette series, which will open next week, the first show of autumn, I'm excited to talk to you about the mythologies, the social commentary of art history, and everything else. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. It has been, I guess you've been able to watch me evolve from coming out of university and then going into the art world, that's such a different world to navigate and to, to find yourself and to find what your style is or what you are in relation to the outside world that's not in the bubble of education. So you've kind of yeah, been walking alongside me in that. So, and, and, you know. and so admired your bravery, because that's not an easy thing to go from school to a commercial art gallery That's in the center good. of Mayfair. You handled it beautifully. I remember coming in on a, a, a talk that I, I sometimes take groups around London and there were men at a, one of the Four Seasons hotels from Texas. Mm -hmm. And we came in with these men who, who had been five decades of career in finance yeah. and you won them over. It was extraordinary. And that continued to happen during your residency. So I do feel attached to it. And your patience in articulating with people is, is also overwhelming. I love talking to people about the work. I mean, I, it's not that I want people to read it exactly how I'm making it, but I want the feedback really, you know, I, I, an artist's life is very solitary and you, especially outside of university and you, outside of an environment where you have so many people constantly throwing ideas back and forth, when you get into that deep end, you are sort of treading water by yourself. So I love to take any opportunity to talk to as many different people as possible about the work from whatever background, age group, you know, I, I love to just see how it's received because that really can subconsciously or consciously influence how I'm progressing forward with, you know, seeing what's working, what's resonating. If you were to describe yourself, who you are and what you do. Mm. I constantly evolving. I mean, I'd, I wouldn't put myself down in one category. I think I've always been just fascinated by the idea of just making and creating and, you know, I love Back to your childhood? Yeah. I mean, I've always drawn. My parents were very encouraging when I was a kid. I've always just played. My dad would just put paper out on the floor and throw crayons on the ground. And my parents were very encouraging in the sense that there was no right or wrong answer. But there was a push towards however you want to do it, do it your way. Because my dad was very good at 
telling me how he would do things or how he's quite a handyman, he's a craftsman, so he would make things and he'd show me how to do them, but and in a stubborn way, I'd sort of do it my own way and it might not as work as well as his, obviously. Your it, parents were artists? Well, my dad was uh, an artist. He went to St. Martin's in Brighton and my mother is an amazing seamstress and works with textiles. Um, good, good it's a good little combo, but my mum's also, a, um, she studied maths at Oxford, so she's got a very structured side. So I guess if you put those two together, I'm kind of ordered chaos in that I have a very structural side to how I think, but I also have a, a freedom in the kind of creative side of how I think. The next question is about your influences culturally and artistically and, and what shaped who you are and your approach to work. But in a sense, I feel like your origins are also that. Yeah, no, yeah. For sure, family has been a big driving point of, of what I do. And there are a lot of artists that, you know, I could list off that I, I admire and like, but I think primarily my influences come from an observational lifestyle of just looking and enjoying the small things you know I, I have these diaries that I keep that are kind of separate from my sort of painting practice but they're drawings that I've just draw people I draw galleries I draw gallery goers I draw exhibitions and those are just things I do on the side but I've seen you yeah I mean we've made plans to go to exhibitions and if I'm late or you get there early I see you in almost a disguise <laughs> yeah. drawing in your books yeah, it's good amazing at, good at hiding and not being noticed that I'm drawing people especially on the tube there's a specific art to drawing someone without them realizing you're looking at them averting gazes when whenever they look back up we will get to the show, and I get that observation is part of your practice. But I also want to talk to you about, I've seen you do performance art, I've seen you do sculpture, I've seen you paint expressively, I've seen your notebooks. How would you describe your studio process, your studio practice? Well, I funda fundamentally, if you had to like boil it down to a word, it would be play. I just want to create structures in which I can play because games need rules, otherwise there is no play. So I create games and create constrictions within those games so that I can then play within them. And for that reason, I've always never really stayed on one medium. I, I just pick on the medium that's appropriate for the game. So I, yeah. <laughs> That leads us nicely into Little Palette. Mm. What were the structures and the rules of the game with this series that is how many pieces and how many artists? Oh. So start <laughs> from the beginning, but about the game. Mm. So the show is one of the biggest bodies of work I've done to date. I think it's over 25 works, ranging from sculptures, paintings, stitch work, tile work, resin sculptures ceramics it's it's a real range of mediums and it is kind of the definition of that structure and play because it's a very recognizable roger hargreaves motif in the mr men format but within that recognizable motif i'm plugging and playing different artists from gilbert and george to hockney to richard riley rose wiley you know across the ages but it's an excuse for me to play within those mediums because I think there's something that can't be said in theory, can't be said in what artists write about. And there's a, an unspoken 
sort of conversation between artists of the past and the present through the actual making of things. And I'm just trying to see if I can learn something more beyond just what an artist says their work's about by trying to imitate their style. I think the last time we spoke, you, you said that you were looking for the viewer's predisposed prejudices yeah. and their assumption about images. And did you challenge that when you were um, creating these homages or these conversations with the history of art? That was another fundamental idea of the show. It's to do with taste and deconstructing my own learnt biases or prejudices in the context of what is good art. So this show is trying to look inside myself and think about what avenues or influences, you know, from family to friends to education to, you know, the institutions that exist around, especially in a British sculpture. Living. Yeah, to where I'm living, to how I was brought up, have determined what I think is good art, you know, because art is a preference and people tend to like what's familiar and that familiarity will create, you know, an interest or a draw for people. And I hope that in standing in those biases, you know, maybe there's something more that will be said when I see them all around each other, but in standing in those biases, hopefully visitors can notice their own prejudices or biases in art in relation to mine. I mean, I, I obviously can observe my own, you know, the majority of the artists that I've painted are mainly white men. So that's like a big glaring elephant in the room. But there was a point when I was thinking about this body of work and that maybe I should make the work in relation to the artists that I don't necessarily have in my subconscious of, of good art. But then I felt that that was dishonest to what I was trying to do or trying to say, because I, I wanted to be honest with what artists do live in my brain sort of behind the scenes and and do kind of nudge you or what you know there's also it's a kind of a cross between that and you know Tate Britain Royal Academy you know main contemporary galleries of who are these flagship or you know main artists that keep re-emerging keep resurfacing in the sort of cycle of art because they are considered the top of the pile. And some of the pieces I look at and I see what you once described as your silent conversations with the masters you're learning from. And I think we're looking at the Hockney right now. I absolutely think Hockney would love it since he's such a fan of new media and new ways of thinking of things. And I think the Gilbert and George is something they'd like. The one thing that the listener can't see that I can see when I look at the work is your versatility and your ability to appropriate the styles and mannerisms of the Bridget Riley's or the Chris Ophelia's or the Rose Wiley's or then something like a Banksy. So your style can be anything you want, which is a gift, but it's also a burden for someone who's on a search for identity. Yeah. So where does that leave you? Well, I, I think, as I said, I always want to be evolving and changing. And in the imitation, I hope that I can get closer to a sense of myself because by observing all of these reappropriated styles, I hope to find a sort of common thread between them all that is me and, and draw out the elements that are more in relation to my style because I still don't feel like I've found it even though you know people tell me that they can recognize my style but I still personally don't feel like I've, I've, I've grounded that yet but by 
playing around with all these different artists, I'm, I'm finding new avenues in which I think, oh, maybe a bit of that into the future. Maybe the next body work could, you know, dive entirely just down one avenue of that. And there's, there's so many possibilities that have arised from just trying to, yeah, find my, find a new style. I think that is, that it seems very um, over the top and, um, pretentious to say but I am trying to find a new style of painting especially in language, today's world a new yeah. language that represents where we are now you're very future facing I can see that you're looking for a new style and new movement something that's reflective of now and this conversation with art history is getting you there it's clear yeah, especially in a world of AI generated art you know we've seen recently some AI software that can generate paintings that are hard to determine between a human touch and a, a robotic touch and that is an interesting knife in the back of traditional painting or like where does painting sit in relation to that and where does the future of painting sit because there is something fundamental in the idea of doing painting but how much of that is just that history of painting of just having that foundation of it just being what it is and so I'm trying to push and pull at that idea of what could be new within that. I'm glad you brought up AI because you're really pushing out and facing the hard fact that painting may be nostalgic <laughs> yeah. and not a language of the future. And you're examining all the possibilities to see if it's an honest reflection of today's life or if AI will actually take over. Well, yeah, is there something in, in the actual human making of something that is is unique to the human experience? Or, you know, I remember... Grayson Perry, who's actually in the show, I made a, a Mr. Perry ceramic pot in collaboration with my girlfriend who works at Ceramic Studio. But in our graduation ceremony, I remember he said, your mistakes are your style. So there's a human aspect to the errors that you make in creating a work that aren't necessarily on purpose, that really speak to something more honest to the human experience, I guess. We're in your studio. Would you talk us through the painting, Seb? Can we start with Mr. Hockney? Uh, yeah, so this is the Mr. Hockney piece. Firstly, you'll notice the scale of it. I remember seeing Hockney's work when I was a kid, the sort of Grand Canyon work that he did when I was really small, and the large paneled work that he sort of filled the whole space with. And I remember being very small and hopefully gaining that same sensation that I think he was trying to emit with um, that sense of the sublime and having a, the canyon so big and vast and he trying to imitate that in the, the panelists. It's also a practical thing. I think, you know, he goes off site a lot and paints in person. Uh, something that actually my dad also does that I, I really admire of people that just take that time to sit in a space and, and, and paint it. Um, and with this work, I've made an amalgam of the things that kind of jump to the fore for me when it comes to Hockney, you know, the British landscapes, there's some specific elements in certain paintings that I really love, like this one was that there's a winding road and there's this big hand-like bush that I always noticed and, you know, Hockney's in relation to water. I left the uh, canvas unprimed in the water area so the, the uh, paint could be really wet when I applied it, but it's a mishmash of oils and acrylics like he would delve between but also the format of the character is in relation to his portrait series I love that Hockney's always just done 
whatever he wants in terms of he paints his friends, he paints his family, he just does what's honest to him and what is interesting to him. And I try to create a sense of energy with that, that splash at the top, which is, you know, a very recognizable motif. But I learned a lot about color, I think, primarily with this work. You know, he has such a vibrant use of color and there's so much fun in how he paints. So I wanted to adopt that in this work. And also the iPad work, the late work, I like that Hockney's always been pushing the boundaries in a similar way to painting. I think he's, he's asking similar questions. And I've got the digital-like Hockney uh, clouds and sun in the, in the corner, which is, I tried to be a bit more crisp and look like an iPad image. <laughs> and Gilbert and George? Gilbert and George are very iconic British artists. You know, their fundamental is that they are the art and that they embody the art in their very being. So that's quite a hard aesthetic to translate into a show that's primarily based on paintings. And with their stained glass window series, I was trying to figure out how I could do my own version of that. So I dressed up in a very crude way to imitate Gilbert and George. I have this bald cap that I put on and I photographed my uh, suit that I usually wear to my private views as Gilbert and George kind of wear a suit as, you know, a suit of armor or like it's a symbolism of a time to work. So in relation to that, I condensed myself in a, a Mr. Man-esque proportion and I wanted to have a diptych of the two of them side by side, an amalgam of print work, also a bit of paint work. I'm doing some high gloss black over the, the grid-like format, which is something I use in all the paintings. There's this uniform nature of them, but I think they came out great. I love that you can see the studio of where I'm making all the work in the pupil of my eye because I took photos of this in the space. So, going through Mr. Men had you thinking a lot about art and artists and what you learn from artists and who inspires you. And I love that you can take inspiration from all of the artists. This is going to make the question I'm about to ask you even more difficult. If you take money out of the equation, what work would you pick to live with? A work that I really love, which was one of the first works that I was ever really drawn to and unfortunately she's recently passed away is a Paula Rego work called War. It's an amazing image, pastel work. It's actually based on a picture from a newspaper, a local newspaper of hers that was depicting, you know, a conflict and that the, the image had children in the image and she has such a, an amazing way of capturing that horror but in in a childish manner that makes you really reflect on the impact of these things, but in a whimsical fairy tale like way, you know, I love Paula Rego. She's one of my favorite artists because she's very narrative driven and she's very fairy tale driven and she's very archetypal story driven, which is something that I've always been drawn to. So if money yeah, wasn't an option, I'd probably get a Paula Rego. Yeah, I'm blown away that you said that because the similarities, the social commentary that sort of softened with the cartoons or the theater, uh, there's so many similarities between her work and your work that aren't obvious until you start to understand and get more involved with who you are as an artist. 
Seb Sharmatin, thank you for hosting us in your studio. Your show, Little Palette, opens on September 2nd at Maddox Gallery and runs until October 6th. Uh, I urge you to see it. This is an incredible talent and you will learn so much about the history of painting and yourself. Thank you for talking to me. Great questions. It was, it was really good fun. You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>